This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, November 16, 2020. One group stands head and shoulders above all others when it comes to discipline, and that's the military. We find out how this prevailing discipline has uniquely positioned armies to protect themselves from COVID-19 outbreaks. How might the virus affect male fertility? We hear from a researcher with the University of Miami. You might not think you're gullible enough to fall victim to online scams, but criminals might already be one step ahead of you. And the common seagull might be smarter than you think. All of this starts now. We want to be eternally vigilant, I guess that's the watchword, and in some cases, we're just getting sloppy, undisciplined. Unlike the military, where discipline is one of the hallmarks of military life, and it stood them in good stead when it comes to combating the COVID-19 virus and its spread. And here to tell us why that would be, Blake Stilwell has joined us on the line, former Air Force combat photographer, Iraq war vet, and now a writer with Military.com on the line from Los Angeles. Blake, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Hey, John. It's great to be back. How are you? Great, as always. uh, Hanging in here in my bunker (laughs) <laughs> down in the root cellar uh blake let me ask you though i'm kind of curious why it is that uh military discipline has in fact stood uh the men and women in the ranks in good stead through all of this well i mean if you look at the the greater united states um you have a piecemeal plan of things that are um not heavily enforced um unequal and um, there's really nothing the government can really do other than fine you, and the next day you could be just out having another party. So um, you could you know, socialize as much as your wallet can take. In the military, um, you know, they have control. Um, they have, uh, it's not just discipline, it's uh, you You do what you're told. And uh if if they tell you that you have to shelter in place, that's what you do until someone comes and tells you to do something else. Um, the, the story in the New York Times today is an interesting photo story about how um, they are taking on new recruits in the Marine Corps and uh, you know getting them all quarantined for two weeks and then entering training and then they do the same things that uh, the, you know the governments have been telling us to do forever: um, isolate, wear masks, wash your hands. Um, and it, it works. So you, you really, uh, you do everything that they're telling you to do, but you do it because, uh, it, it's not just discipline. Uh, it is the military's, uh, structure. You're forced to do it. You don't have the freedom to, uh, go hang out with your friends if you want to. Right. But there's a takeaway from all of that, that, uh, the discipline, however it is instilled, whether it's, uh, you know, by command or, uh, if you've got self-motivation, uh, you can come out with the same positive results. I guess indirectly, Blake, this is kind of a, an indictment of people who are sloppy, undisciplined, slovenly, and, uh, they're letting it get away from them as well as impacting mm-hmm. many, many more. In the military, my guess, too, is because, I mean, you're living and working cheek by jowl and you can't take your work home from uh, with you and you can't work from home necessarily. Uh, this is even uh, a greater consideration, isn't it, for the ranks? Well, yes. I mean, uh, there are uh, a lot of military personnel who are working from home and uh, do socially distance. But uh, the ones that can't, uh, 
Look, the Noir here is about the unit. It's about the good of the group over everybody else. So uh, if you are taking a risk, you're basically putting your coworkers and your friends and their families at risk uh, unnecessarily. And that's what you think about. You don't just think about yourself when you're in the military. Your actions, your personal actions, have a greater effect on overall readiness. And uh, in the case of coronavirus, even to the families of the people that you love and care for. What is the rate of infection relative to civilian populations? Has there been any breakdown or study of that? Um, I, I believe in the New York Times they mentioned that it, it has been, um, the civilian population has been like scores more than the military uh, when, when you take into account um, similar population areas. Like I, I think the New York Times uh, post today was about uh, Recruit Depot San Diego. And uh, the Marines in San Diego are, are experiencing a, a very small uh, rate of infection, whereas they took a county in um, upstate New York and where they had a similar population. And we're talking like, um, you know, exponentially more, uh, 22,000 deaths versus the, the military as a whole, I believe, only has a, a couple of dozen. Wow. Uh, all right. And so, I mean, if the military, uh, as you say, shelter in place can be a command. Uh, if you're confined to your base, uh, you can't spread it. And uh, I'm guessing nobody's going to come in with it or very few people would be. But they'd be uh, very careful to try to make it, uh, a, let's call it a hardened zone, if you will, a hardened target. Because the military, based on history, understands spread uh, of communicable diseases, do they not? Of course, and, and the cases you're talking about, uh, minimizing the spread of people coming in and on, I mean, the military is all about risk management, and every individual troop learns risk management from the day they come in. So uh, it would just be risk management in the greater sense. I need to bring food on the military base? That's a good risk. Do I need to bring uh, necessarily alcohol or uh, people who have uh, no necessary function? No, it's an unnecessary risk, so they don't take it no matter how much it hurts. Um, historically, uh, yeah, the the U.S. military has always, um, not even just the U.S. military, every military um, in the world historically has suffered from disease, uh, especially, uh, we all know World War One was a uh, prime example of how a, a virus can spread around the world and just decimate populations. But in the Civil War, uh, uh, two-thirds of the Union Army was, uh, of the Union Army's casualties were due to disease. And... Uh, <laughs> There's a we all say the phrase having guts. You've got the guts to do something. Now means intestinal fortitude. Like I'm brave enough to do it. In the Civil War, they were having guts to do something. That they were talking about. He didn't have dysentery. He was able to fight because he he was one of the few people that didn't have dysentery. And it was even a uh, an unspoken rule among Civil War soldiers that if uh, if you saw somebody you know emptying their bowels because of a disease, you wouldn't shoot him, even if he was on the other side. There was just some things he didn't do. And that's how widespread diseases like dysentery were uh, amongst the group. What a fascinating account. Uh, I'm guessing, though, that uh, there's also some something to recommend, the quarantine of the military. They found this with recruits. Uh, <laughs> what, what did they learn, I guess, indirectly about uh, somebody who either had the guts or didn't, figuratively speaking, for military life when it came to quarantines? Uh, are you talking about back then or today? No, today, you know, uh, when they got to go into the two-week uh, quarantine. Yeah. Uh, 
So you you learn a lot over the years, right? And uh, in the in World War II and Vietnam, uh, well, actually Vietnam, they get everybody on the the same level medically. So before you run the gauntlet, they would uh, inoculate you against every vaccine they had, and then they'd give you a shot of penicillin just to make sure that everybody was on the same page uh, because you're coming from all these areas of the world. So now with the coronavirus and how it spreads, it makes sense that the Marine Corps would uh, put recruits up for two weeks in a hotel. And that sounds like a, a resort, but it's not. It's still basic training. But they have to get everybody into the same level. And, um, and it, according to the numbers, it's proved remarkably effective uh, at not just uh, weeding out coronavirus cases, but apparently at uh, weeding out recruits who were never going to pass it in the first place. And I, I, th- I don't think the Marines are going to go back to, um, you know, the standard boot camp. They're already talking about implementing this two-week quarantine uh for the long term. So that that's a very interesting uh, development that, that has come out of this. Yeah, separates the wheat from the chaff. Some who can't even endure two weeks in quarantine, uh, that's not a good sign, mm-hmm. not a good omen that they're really going to be committed to the project. Right. And those right. are, there are and too many amongst us. Solitary confinement. They're, they're with another recruit, so it's not like they're alone. But yeah, um, I mean, if you can't do that, then you're going to have a hard time. Well, that doesn't augur well for civilian populations as well. If there are people of that ilk, uh, can't take a two-week temporary lockdown or certain restrictions. But you know, it's also worked in the sports bubbles too. I got to say, the NBA, the NHL, they've had that discipline, uh, military-like, and because they understood the stakes were that high, and they completed their seasons. And uh, going forward, I guess uh, that's a testament to what discipline can mean. And we've learned that as well from the military. And this afternoon, heard it from our friend, uh, again, Blake Stillwell in Los Angeles, former Air Force combat photographer, war vet, and uh, writer with Military.com. Blake, as always, a pleasure. I appreciate it. Stay well. John, I love the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's kind of known now by researchers that more men get sick and die from COVID-19 than women do. And uh, at the University of Miami, Researchers believe they may have found part of the reason why. One of those researchers is Dr. Ranjit Ramasamy, urology specialist with the University of Miami. Dr. Ramasamy, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I appreciate you coming on uh, so that uh, more men are dying than women. And I guess uh, you're part of the research team that thinks they might have found a reason why. Why would that be then? So the receptor to which COVID-19 binds to, um, we're all very familiar that it's actually present in the lungs. It causes, you know, lung failure and it binds to the kidneys and it causes kidney failure, leading to patients to go on to get dialysis uh, in a small percentage. But the interesting thing is actually the receptor is mostly found in the testis, which is obviously the male reproductive organ. And we think that is one of the reasons why it's way more common in men than in women, and men who get COVID get way more sicker and also die a lot more compared to females. And so uh, did you test this in deceased COVID patients or those uh, who are living with the virus uh, right now? Perfect. So we actually did both. Uh, So initially, because we knew that the receptor was mostly in the testis, we actually started with uh, evaluating testis biopsies Uh, from men who actually died from COVID. And we actually found that the virus was present in the testis, obviously after death, and also affected fertility and sperm production inside the testis. 
But what was surprising was that we went on to test this in living people. And we cannot do it when you have an active infection. So we did it in men who had recovered from the COVID infection, tested negative, but who had initially had some mild symptoms and gotten better. And what was most surprising was that we found the presence of the virus inside the testis long after the guy that had recovered and suggesting that the, te- that the virus can probably linger inside the testis uh, long after the initial infection and the symptoms. Can you give us a time frame? I mean, is that something that you periodically uh, update and study? I mean, or has the maybe potency of the viral load diminished over time? Uh, what does your research tell you? Absolutely. I mean, all of those are possibilities. This, uh, in this particular patient, uh, patients, we actually tested it about uh, three months after the initial infection. And the fact that we saw it three months when the patient was completely recovered, we think that it can be present inside the testes. And I think one thing that you mentioned was something called viral load. And, and I think the question that we are now trying to answer is how much virus needs to be present inside the testes for it to affect fertility, and possibility of sexual transmission, how much virus needs to be inside the testis for it to actually be transmitted into the seminal fluid and be transmitted along to the partners. Again, with Dr. Ranjit Ramasamy, urology specialist and researcher with the University of Miami, finding that men actually who have contracted COVID-19, uh, both living and deceased, uh, had inordinate amounts of the virus in their testes. And so uh, the suggestion here is that there would be an impact on uh, reproductive uh, organs and uh, the potential for having families and so on and so forth. By the way, doctor, just out of curiosity, how many men did you test the living and deceased? In the uh, living, a total of three, and in the deceased, a total of six. I see. Uh, for research purposes, is that an adequate sample? For now, because we did very um, invasive testing with electron microscopy, it is not possible to do it in large samples of the population. But the fact that we are able to even see this in a small cohort of patients tells us that this deserves further study in a larger uh, population of men. And also to see if these guys that recover, uh, does it linger along with time or does it disappear with time? All of those questions still remain to be answered because we're still very new and learning this as as the days go by. Yeah, you know what was interesting, just a quick aside, I was noticing today uh, one of the news crawls had said that a woman who had the virus and I guess was in labor, uh, she died in childbirth. I'm just wondering if there's any correlation there as far as that's concerned. Could it impact reproductive organs in both? You're studying men uh, almost exclusively, I guess? Yes, I mean, obviously, um, it's it's much easier to study uh, testis biopsies and sperm just because they're available to study. In females, it's a lot tougher to study because the eggs don't really come outside from the ovary, and it's much tougher to do ovarian biopsies than it is to do testis biopsies. And so um, while it's challenging, the receptors are pretty similar in the females. Um, So I would suspect the effect is probably similar in the females. But obviously that remains to be seen. But the uh, point that you make about uh, childbirth is that we think that because the COVID-19 has an has a propensity to make blood clots um, because of other mechanisms that are not associated with, with fertility. We think that, you know, females who have childbirth during childbirth can have issues with COVID from forming blood clots all over the body. So how are you confident then that uh, this has impact on uh, reproductive 
capability or capacity. How have you extrapolated that? Absolutely. So, for one, we did the, in the testis biopsies. We can com- we compared it to um, autopsies from men who died from causes other than COVID. And in an ongoing study at the University of Miami, we have actually collected data of, of sperm analyses from about 30 men who are living with COVID. And we found that more than half the men have impaired uh, sperm parameters and impaired fertility uh, in the first three months after the COVID infection. Whether they recover, whether they decline, we still don't know the answers. We're still waiting for the follow-up analyses. Uh, but I can tell you that about 50% of men had impaired sperm production and fertility uh, in the first three months. Is there any pain that goes with this? So about 10 to 20% of men with COVID infection can have testicular pain. In fact, sometimes in rare cases, that seems to be the only presenting complaint. They don't have cough and cold. It has testicular pain. So in those patients, I think they need to be more wary of uh, having their fertility affected or possibility of sexual transmission and certainly speak with their urologist about getting their fertility checked or um, their testosterone levels checked and certainly about the discuss the possibility of sexual transmission. Yeah, tell me about that. I mean, but first, let me just ask, I mean, is this basically then a, a sort of a affirmative red flag for men who want to have families? I mean, to uh, be very conscious not to contract the contagion we know at the best of times you should do that but uh is this especially an acute consideration if you want to have a family you've got to take every measure to uh make sure you don't contract the contagion absolutely 100 percent. especially men who are at high risk professions like obviously like us who are in the healthcare field who are constantly exposed to patients uh with covid people who are involved in testing frontline workers i think have to be careful about not being not contracting the virus, not just for the reproductive organs, for obviously their whole health in general. Uh, but certainly there is an option to freeze the sperm. Sperm that's frozen today is probably good for about 10 to 15 years. And if they do think they want to start a family in the future, um, they should speak with their urologist about the possibility of sperm cryopreservation and what it involves. Yeah, that's an interesting caveat. On the STD front, uh, you've mentioned that a couple of times now. How do we know the impact of COVID-19 insofar as sexually transmitted diseases? So, so far, there are many viruses, obviously, that are uh, sexually transmitted, and HIV is obviously, we're all very familiar with it. Um, we, do, we still don't know the answer. We think that if you are recovered, the amount of virus that is, that need, that is present in the semen is probably not enough to be sexually transmitted. We still don't know, even if it is present in the semen, if it's viable and if it can be transmitted to the partner or not. Um, So we still don't know. I think the first step is to see that it is present in the uh, organs um, long after, like the symptoms, right? So I think it is very obviously, I don't think men uh, who are symptomatic are hopefully not having sexual intercourse uh, without a condom. So they, you know, that could obviously, there are many routes of transmission during symptoms. But I think it is in this asymptomatic population where every, everybody thinks that it's all done and you're good to go is when you restart normal activity is when there could be a st- small risk of transmission. And I think that's where I think men need to be careful uh, and discuss with their doctor about uh, what the implications are uh, before they do that. Could even be some latent harm after you've cleared the virus. Uh, again, this is fascinating Absolutely. research on a need-to-know basis. Uh, several caveats in there, doctor. 
Really appreciate you bringing us up to date on your research. I'm sure it continues in this vein, and uh, perhaps by way of follow-up, we'll talk again real soon. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You got it. Dr. Ranjit Ramasamy, urology specialist and researcher at the University of Miami. Trying to be impregnable to uh, data breaches is an ongoing story, and I just wanted to uh, bring you the latest installment by way of author Mark Sangster. Uh, his book is No Safe Harbor, The Inside Truth About Cybercrime and How to Protect Your Business. Mark Sanger has joined us on the line here on The Oakley Show. Mark, good afternoon. Appreciate your weighing in. Afternoon. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Well, you know, it's an ongoing concern and consideration. You document this to the point of even bringing it right up to date, the file, uh, as to daily, it seems like, uh, breaches for businesses anyway when it comes to data. Interestingly, you say cybersecurity is not an IT problem to solve. It's a business risk to manage. Tell me what you mean by that and how one safeguards a business or even personal data. Yeah, having worked with hundreds of companies on this this subject, and unfortunately seeing the dark side of, of of data breaches, right, where it's law firms, hospitals, manufacturers, financial institutions, et cetera, what I find is that typically the communication between the IT teams, so the people who have the expertise, and the business leaders, you know, is really kind of disconnected there, right? And that's because techies talk in ones and zeros, and business leaders talk in dollars and cents. And so, you know, until we kind of rectify that problem, and that was really, you know, the attempt of the book, um, you know, we're going to continue seeing these kind of data breaches plaguing businesses. All right. So for the layperson's uh, the, the purposes, what, what would the lessons be, the key points in your book that they could take away from it? Or I mean, is it going to apply on a personal level as much as a business level? No, you're absolutely right that, you know, I think a lot of the lessons that, that businesses can learn can also be applied to sort of, you know, personal or consumer level security. So, you know, it's doing the basics, right? Using reasonable passwords and not sharing them, making sure that your home internet connection is protected. You know, you've turned on encryption, that you're, you know, you've changed the passwords, the default passwords that it comes with, those sorts of things. Because, you know, often it, it is about hygiene. And if we can, you know, put the basics in place, uh, that eliminates a lot of the risk. But I think the bigger piece is simply being aware of the fact that you are a target. And whether you're an individual or you're a, a big, you know, Fortune 500 company, the reality is you have something worth stealing. Um, and for that reason, criminals are going to target you. You know, it's interesting, as you said, that there's almost a correlation to uh, this whole COVID-19 thing when the health authorities are telling us, you know, uh, be ever mindful and vigilant because it's out there and you're not immune or impregnable to it. So it's the same kind of attitude that we've got to take or approach, I'm guessing, then, uh, you know, they're lying in wait for you and you could if you're susceptible to get you. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, as we were wrapping up the uh, the manuscript of the book, given uh, the COVID pandemic, I ended up adding a chapter that was sort of related to that and the types of attacks that we've seen. And this is exactly it, right? You have to understand the risk. Then you have to understand what some of the basic uh, steps are, measures that you can take to protect yourself, you know, wearing a mask, socially distancing, those kind of things, right? And, and it's essentially analogous uh, in the cybersecurity world. And unfortunately, too many companies and too many individuals just, you know, they don't see the risk. They think it happens to someone else. So unfortunately, they don't take steps to protect themselves. Again, Mark Sangster is with us. The book's just out, No Safe Harbor, The Inside Truth About Cybercrime and How to Protect Your Business. Still with COVID-19, it's obviously changed the workforce. The dynamic there is that people are working increasingly from home and so on and so forth. Uh, how has that impacted cybersecurity or the lack thereof? 
Yeah, so that's a great question and, and a big issue. In the last, you know, nine months or so, uh, I've spent a lot of time with firms and individuals grappling with that. And the big, you know, I think the biggest thing is the the drive to a remote workforce means we were all accessing those, you know, critical systems and confidential customer and consumer information in our workplace and doing it from our home. And so the reality is, you know, we're using our own laptops, our own phones at home. As I said, you know, before we're we're connecting to that business system through our consumer grade, you know, internet router, through our, our ISP, right? Our Rogers, Telus, Bell, whoever it might be. Um, and those systems are all great, but they're not, you know, they're not monitored. They don't have the same level of staffing. Um, they're not, they're simply not configured to defend, you know, the big, the big banks and the big hospitals. That was the original intention. And, and, you know, so shifting to sort of home grade security has created a lot of risk and also just that breaking communication with COVID, right? A lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, people trying to seek out what's actually going on. Uh, and that creates a smokescreen in which criminals can move around and, you know, send fake emails and, you know, dupe you into giving up your credentials so they can steal money from you. You know, it's impressive, too, that you've really uh, taken this from contemporary headlines, I guess, by way of updating. you citing something here that happened just uh less than a week ago, I guess, in the city of Prince George, B.C. What was mm. that story? Yeah, so uh, in that case, that was uh, fraudulent wire transfer, or uh, technical terms are called business email compromise. And many companies, uh, in some cases, individuals face this, where you receive an invoice, it looks like it's legitimate, and if you don't do the right background checks, you pay your bill, and it turns out it's not going to a supplier, uh, it's you know, or a retailer. It's actually going to criminals on the other side of the world. And uh, this is extremely common, and you know, ranges anywhere from the hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses to the millions of dollars in losses. And depending on the circumstances, it's not always insurable. So you might get some of it back from the bank, uh, and in other cases, you might get some back by your insurer. But we've you know, won too many stories, unfortunately, where companies have found themselves millions of dollars in the hole because of this type of attack. And it's very common and it's doubled in it's sort of uh, in the volume of attacks we've seen since um, February of this year. So when you say it's uh, become common and frequent now, yeah, I mean, some things, some ruses are so transparent that they're almost comedic, like, you know, the Nigerian prince who's emailing you and so on. But I'm guessing this is a level of sophistication that it's uh, fooling fairly wary people. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's another contributing factor to people not protecting themselves. They think that these things are self-evidently fake, right? As you say, the Nigerian prince is a perfect example, or you get a, an email from your bank or your, your online you know, uh, video streaming service, and the logo is misspelled. And you know, we look at that and we say, come on, you know, that's obviously you know, not real. Um, that's one sort of set. But really, the types of attacks we're talking about are highly evolved, where they understand who you are. They've what we call engineered you, which means they've looked at your public profiles. They figured out who your executives are, what your job title is, what kind of responsibility you might have, what kind of invoices you were likely to receive, et cetera. So they're creating something that becomes very difficult with the naked eye to distinguish uh, from legitimate you know, email communication, as an example. And that's why these firms are, are, are falling prey to this. Because it, you know, without the microscope, right, the naked eye isn't good enough to be able, in many of these cases, to detect these threats. Again, Mark Sangster, No Safe Harbor, the inside truth about cybercrime and how to protect your business. You know, when it comes to businesses, now, we had alluded earlier to uh, when it's ransomware, for example, smaller hospitals, you know, I mean, they need the data. And uh, so more often than not, they just pay out whatever. Uh, 
to what extent is that still going on or is it increasing? Uh, are they going for the larger sums? How is this game playing? Is it shape-shifting? Because there have been stories, smaller municipalities getting hit and people asking only for ten grand because it's easier to kind of capitulate than uh, trying to resolve it otherwise. Yeah, so the trend that we're seeing is certainly upwards of $10,000. It's going to the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions. So they've moved in tactics with ransomware. Uh, one, we're seeing, again, a doubling of the volume since about February, and that's not a surprise with coronavirus. Um, but then what we're also seeing now is a what we call a sort of a longer, sort of low and slow type of approach, which means rather than just compromising one single device and locking it and saying, okay, give me thousands of dollars, otherwise, you know, you can't unencrypt your files, they're now slowly deploying throughout the environment. So they're putting this ransomware on all of the devices, on the backups, on other systems, and then they detonate at a coordinated event. So it takes the company down, and that's what we've seen in the healthcare space where hospitals are crippled, and now they're asking for significantly more money. And in fact, the ones that I've been involved in, we're seeing, you know, uh, the low millions, let's say three, four million, and in one case, it was, I think they wanted 46 million because they had attacked a law firm that uh, um, had as a client base very high net wealth individuals, you know, celebrities and so on. They didn't pay that, and they're never going to pay that. Um, But it does show that the criminals, it's big business to them, and they're willing to invest. They're willing to invest time, money, and effort because they want a big return. So, Mark, uh, finally, what's the best uh, approach for a business or any individual to take if they've got something of value that they've got to safeguard? Uh, Is it in the uh, installation of uh, all your security uh, I don't know, the software, how would you approach that? Give us a a template. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing to do is is to understand what your risk looks like. So work with an expert in security. They will help you determine what what sort of tools and technologies you have in place and how well they're performing. They'll also look at your business, right? So they'll look at, you know, if you're a hospital, you have to protect healthcare records. If you're a bank, you have to protect, you know, bank accounts and financial transactions, et cetera. So they, they understand what it is, what your obligations are, and they understand how the bad guys go about targeting you so they can help you put a plan together. Really, it is, as I said, it's about understanding risk, understanding your obligations when it comes to protecting consumer consumer information and then frankly just putting the basic security you know tools and technologies in place right passwords encryption using uh you know using secured remote connections and so on by doing that you can eliminate 80 percent of your risk yeah and keeping your staff updated on those files as well uh making sure they're savvy to uh their own security protocols Always good to know. Uh, this is something that I guess would be one of the better investments a company can make in terms of uh, cybersecurity. It's there in the book. Again, Mark Sangster, author of No Safe Harbor, The Inside Truth About Cybercrime and How to Protect Your Business. Mark, I appreciate your weighing in this afternoon from Cambridge. No, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Fascinating study that's come out of the UK as well when it d- deals with the behavior of seagulls. As kids would go to school and uh, they'd bring along, you know, whatever they're treats that they'd uh, unpack at lunch or recess the seagulls would be waiting there this is part of the observation that was done by dr anuk spelt conducting the research on these urban seagulls while working at the university of bristol in the uk uh let's find out what this all entailed dr spelt has joined us from the netherlands this evening their time and it's the afternoon here in toronto dr spelt good to have you on the oakley show good afternoon hello good afternoon I appreciate you joining us. Uh, so you studied seagulls, and uh, you determined that they actually uh, time their arrival uh, around school lunch so they can steal food. So uh, tell me how you came to this conclusion. What gave you that evidence? 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so we studied gulls um, that live in the urban environment, and we did a combination of two uh, methods. So we both looked at gulls that had backpacks, so we could follow them. They had backpacks with GPS in it, so we could follow them, and we knew at what time they would be where. Um, and we also did observations at the school. So we had a look at which goals or how many goals were actually during which times at the school. So combining those two methods, we found that there were more goals during lunchtime at that school than when there was nobody around. So you rigged them up with GPS, so uh, they would be tracked, I guess, scientifically, empirically, and uh, they exhibited predictable behavior then? This was like uh, so predictable that you know they would show up at a certain time frame? Yeah, um, basically they, they, yeah, we kind of understood, we knew that they would show up around lunchtime. Um, and also break, like the break before, like the first break in the morning where they, when the kids sometimes have a snack as well. Um, so yeah, we could, we, we haven't predicted it, but we could see in the pattern that they would come there every day again at the same time. What about on weekends when school was out? Yeah, so on weekends, we didn't see that pattern. So we didn't see peaks at specific times. And in general, there were less gulls around during weekends as well. well then where did they go? I mean, did you notice that uh, they might have had alternative food sources, uh, but it was just ripe pickings when school was in session Monday to Friday? Yeah, exactly. So gulls use a wide variety of, of food resources. And in a city, there's a lot of different places where they can get their food. Um, so they can get food from schools, but they can get food from way centers or from the city center or from other areas that they can go to just just have some yeah parks or other areas, basically. So it's not only schools that they uh, get their food from. But Dr. Spelt, uh, what does this say for the gulls then if they know that the school is in session and there's a, a certain time frame where the kids are going to be outside mowing down on their treats? Uh, does that mean they're efficient scavengers, uh, good observationists? What does that say for these gulls? Well, I guess um, they are definitely good observationists. So they they are opportunistic feeders. Um, so whenever they are flying somewhere and they see an opportunity and there's food available, they would go for that. So they're definitely that kind of animals. But they also, in some kind of way, are quite smart that they know that at these timings, there's this food available and that they go there at those timings. So that's not only just whenever food is available, they time it to go there to get that food. I wonder if they have an internal clock. Any idea if that's the way it uh, works? Is it premised on that? Yeah, so that's the, the future research. What's next? We basically found out uh, or proved, had evidence that they do it, that we know that they're actually timing it. But the next step is to figure out if indeed they have an internal clock or if it's just that they follow cues that they get while they are uh, flying around. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely the next step, which would be really interesting. Again, with Dr. Anouk Spelt conducting this research on urban seagulls while working at the University of Bristol in the UK. Uh, these birds are smart, and they've timed out their feeding habits based on how human beings uh, might be dropping food, or they might even steal the food from human beings. By the way, uh, this is something else I noted uh, in your research. The gulls actually prefer food mm -hmm. that's been touched by humans.
Why would that be? Ah, so, yeah, that's um, interesting because they kind of, I guess they kind of know um, that when we touch it, it's something that we can eat, that it's edible. Um, so, yeah, that might be a reason that they think like, okay, if we eat it, then they can eat it. But that's something, yeah, we don't really know how they think of that. But it seems like they um, they do that, yes. <laughs> wow, all right. Uh, so, again, taking their cues from human behavior in a very observational. Uh, by the way, have they adapted <laughs> now any... You know, Dr. Spell, I was I was kind of curious, like uh, if they had a, a preference to live in the wilds or live uh, in an urban setting. I mean, is there any way of distinguishing, for example, have they adapted to urban settings uh, to their detriment? It's like bears, you know, you're not supposed to feed them in the wild because then they become not afraid of human beings. They come into uh, communities and near homes and things like how about the gulls? Would they be better served like flying out on the open waters or uh, in urban parks? Or do you think... Have they just adapted uh, out of necessity? Yeah, so I think definitely the letter, the last thing that you said. So they, uh, I used to live on islands and coastal areas and fishing on the seas. Um, but that has changed quite rapidly over the last decades. Um, and they definitely had to adapt to an environment that we created. So yeah, we, yeah, the urbanization, we created buildings we created more artificial environment and they had to adapt in order to survive uh, and stay stay alive as a population so they are luckily very good in adapting and they are able to live in our cities and uh, make use of the all the nesting sites on the rooftops that we have and the food availability but there are a lot of animals and plants as well that can't do this so that's yeah one of the yeah, one of the main reasons that girls are thriving in cities because they have this enormous flexibility in their behavior and their ability to adapt to um, these kind of changes. Yeah, and you say they also conserve energy, you know, just stand on the rooftop, wait for the kid to drop a part of a sandwich and they swoop in rather than having to, you know, go out there and traverse vast expanses of water looking for a fish floating somewhere. The other thing I was really curious about, Dr. Spelt, you say that uh, if there's a gull, you know, uh, confronting you at a picnic table, you can actually ward them off uh, with intense eye contact. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, so that's actually not a study done by us. Uh, but by our colleagues at Exeter University, um, and they did more uh, behavior studies where they actually um, looked at, had food around for a gull to eat, and they looked at the gull, and they found when they looked at it, instead of looking away, the gull took longer to get the food, so they were more afraid or more like less confident of going to get the food when you actually stare at them. So that was a really interesting research of that of that group um, that basically showed that there is some kind of behavior that we can do to kind of like avoid, hopefully, <laughs> getting your food snacked. I love it. I mean, uh, next time I'm, you know, seaside and uh, confronted by a gull, either on the beach blanket or wherever, it's a stare contest and uh, away he flies. Uh, that's really the yeah. antidote to yeah being plagued by gulls. I appreciate very much uh, your insights into this study. Uh, I mean, it's always good to know. We've come away from here better informed, yeah. and that's the whole point and purpose of this program. I'm not just an all-around family entertainer, you understand. Dr. Spelt, wish you the best in the Netherlands. Uh, all the, the best in staying safe and healthy. Yes, yeah, thank you very much. You too. Thank you. Dr. Anouk Spelt.
in the Netherlands. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, November 16th, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 